Hello and welcome. This is the Race and Podcast, a series of interviews and conversations hosted by the Society of Architectural Historians, Race and Architectural History Group. My name is Charles Davis, and I'm an Associate Professor of Architectural History at SUNY Buffalo. I am also the host of the Race and Podcast, and I'm here to introduce you to a special series produced in collaboration with Princeton University School of Architecture. This series is entitled American Architecture as a Settler Colonial Project. This series re-examines American architecture through the lens of settler colonialism to identify the ways that racial discourses have distorted our conception of the built environment. It is divided into two parts. Part one examines canonical examples of American architecture and its written theory from the late 19th century to the present. Part two recovers the works of people of color to reprise the countercultural definitions of architecture that have been lost to time. A major goal of these podcasts is to provide teaching plans to primary, secondary, and higher education instructors who wish to examine the role of race on the built environment. Please take a look at the resources provided in the show notes of each episode, which include annotations of each conversation and detailed bibliographies on reference materials students can explore. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy our series. Well, I just could not live beside them. I don't feel that they should be oppressed. But I moved here. One of the main reasons was because it was a white community. And that's the only place I intend to live. If I have to leave Levittown, I will do so. Hi, I'm Ellen Harris. And I'm Dylan Horwitz. We're graduate students at the Princeton University School of Architecture, and this podcast is part of a series that aims to construct a settler colonial history of American architecture through an investigation of canonical works. In this episode, we will be exploring Levittown and post-war suburbia at large through a framework driven by settler colonial theories. Before we begin, we want to point out that Levittown may refer to any of the seven separate developments built by William Levitt between 1947 and 1970 in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Puerto Rico, and Maryland, and we will be using the name as a general term for these experiments in post-war suburban housing, unless otherwise noted. As Barbara Kelly notes, Levittown assumed a national identity as the quintessential post-war American suburb. As early as January of 1948, the local newspapers had caught on to the widespread interest in Levittown as the symbolic suburb and were advising the residents of their importance as models of American democratic behavior. In other words, she writes, Levittown became the code word for the new suburban subdivision. Levittown is often thought of as a paragon of mass housing efficiency and as an influential model of how to execute suburban sprawl. It is also a primary spatio-temporal incidence and general representation of a settler colonial disposition toward occupying land in the United States. We propose that by acknowledging a culture in which segregation, discrimination, and other white supremacist values and acts were codified in laws and customs, 
we are also able to see the instantiation of these systems and beliefs on the ground, in the form of pastoral, quaint imagery and objects on a typical suburban street. It is then possible to see how Levittown and the broader suburban landscape use traditional settler visual cues to both soften the insidious nature of the discriminatory policies underlying its organization, as well as to signal to prospective and current homeowners that this form of community was an extension, a direct descendant, of the centuries-old practice of white folk settling in the countryside. Levittown is known among planners, designers, and architects for its role in ushering in a new mode of living that is highly dependent on the petrol economy, and it is also, more or less, already recognized as being a prime example of racist housing policies. In this podcast, we seek to more explicitly show how images embody and convey meaning, and to assert, via the example of Levittown, that innocuous, even decorative objects and architectural constructs and expressions may symbolize far more sinister machinations. Before we go any further, we'd like to more clearly establish what we mean when we say that we'll be looking at this topic through a settler colonial lens. To do this, we'll use a definition of the theory from Alicia Cox, who writes that settler colonialism is an ongoing system of power that perpetuates the genocide and repression of indigenous peoples and cultures. Essentially hegemonic in scope, settler colonialism normalizes the continuous settler occupation, exploiting lands and resources to which indigenous peoples have genealogical relationships. Settler colonialism includes interlocking forms of oppression, including racism, white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, and capitalism. This is because settler colonizers are Eurocentric and assume that European values with respect to ethnic and therefore moral superiority are inevitable and natural. However, these intersecting dimensions of settler colonialism coalesce around the dispossession of indigenous peoples' lands, resources, and cultures. Settler colonizers destroy indigenous peoples and cultures in order to replace them and establish themselves as the new rightful inhabitants. In other words, settler colonizers do not merely exploit indigenous peoples and lands for labor and economic interests. They displace them through settlements. As we'll see, the construction of massive suburban developments is an indisputable component of the settler colonial exercise of oppression in the United States. The time periods and spaces that we discuss in this podcast are part of a larger historical and cultural assertion of dominance and are therefore still actively operating in today's world. The post-war period, marked by economic growth and new mortgage insurance and financing programs through the Federal Housing Administration, allowed millions of young Americans to purchase single-family homes for the first time. Many of these families were also supported by the GI Bill, granting further access to homeownership for veterans. This created an unprecedented demand for housing developments, encouraging real estate developers, like Levitt and Sons, to construct suburban communities throughout the country at a rapid pace. However, the inclusion of racially restrictive covenants, which prevented any non-white people from purchasing homes in these developments, denied Black veterans the same economic opportunities as their white counterparts. Although two landmark Supreme Court decisions, Shelley v. Kramer and Barrows v. Jackson, the latter taking effect in 1953, deemed it unconstitutional for the government to enforce property restrictions on the basis of race, the federal government did little to prevent private developers from doing just that. Therefore, Levitt & Sons was effectively supported in its refusal to sell homes to black families. 
Many residents took this as a sign that their community would and should continue to be an exclusively white one. However, there was no legal basis for preventing a white family from reselling their home to a black family. And in 1957, William and Daisy Myers became the first black family to move into Levittown. In August 1957, Levittown, Pennsylvania attracted international attention when violence erupted as William Myers Jr. and his family moved into the three-bedroom house at Daffodil and Deep Green Lanes. In almost all respects, the Myers family is close to the Levittown norm. They have three small children, the youngest only one month old. Myers served for two and a half years in the Army and was discharged as a staff sergeant. He works as a laboratory technician and is studying for a degree as an electrical engineer. His wife, Daisy, is a college graduate. The Myers home is modestly furnished and their late model family car was bought on time. They are very close to the Levittown norm, except in one respect. William Myers Jr. and his family are Negroes in an all-white community. Some view the incident calmly and indicate acceptance of the fact. But for others, the Myers moving into Levittown constitutes an infringement of their own liberties. And under the impact of this situation, they react with anger and force. What they say reveals their deepest fears and frustration. Why did you select Levittown to live? We were looking for a place to buy a home. We looked at Levittown, and we liked the homes here. We liked the advantages that Levittown seemed to offer in uh, comparison to other cities. And we understood that it was going to be all white. We were very happy to buy a home here. What has been the effect of the Myers coming here? Well, it's, it's created a great deal of tension, not uh, among the neighbors, because we all feel the same. But uh, it's naturally made everyone tense in their homes. I mean, this, this is affecting our homes. And uh, it's bound to create tension. It's the subject that's talked about all the time. But there are others who are for the Myers? Yes, I've read about them. For what reason, do you think, do they support the Myers? Frankly, I don't know what reasons they can have for it. If there are homeowners in Levittown, I don't see what reasons they can have for it. Now that we have a sense of the climate in which these towns were built, let's take some time to look at a few of the common elements that comprise a typical suburban street. We should point out that in this podcast, we're only going to focus on objects that are visible on the exterior of a house. There is a rich body of literature on the symbolism of interior plans and styles, but for our purposes, we will only be addressing elements that are visible from the street. In order to situate ourselves in this space, we'll turn to contemporary media accounts and stories about these exciting new developments. We should also note that many of the things we'll be talking about are ubiquitous and ordinary, and they may therefore seem trite to the point of meaninglessness. It is, however, because of the omnipresence of these artifacts that we can see how the physical environment both subliminally and overtly signals to white people that this land is your land. Peter Greyer situates us on October 28, 1980, in a typical suburban landscape. Deep in the heart of the suburbs, on a winding, curbless street, is an ersatz colonial home with a two-foot plastic eagle over the door. 
Next door, a fine example of Tudor revival displays fake exposed beams and a turret, minus the cannon. Scott A. Kinsey, an assistant professor of design at SUNY Buffalo, wonders if colonial homes are more formal in evidence of some sort of permanent nostalgia. Are colonial homeowners all bankers? Were homes with rough sawn siding built because contractors thought consumers were hungering for some sort of rural image? Responding to Greyer's descriptions, Stephen Eisenhower, a design partner at Venturi Rauch and Scott Brown, claims traditional styles such as colonial and Spanish mission revival are popular because American culture is so image conscious. They appeal historically, he explains, adding that people feel comfortable with them because they're part of our upbringing. Breyer adds that the Cape Cods and colonials scattered through suburbia like prosperous citizens are more than mere replicas. And he quotes Chester Leagues, an architectural historian at the University of Vermont, who says that they reflect people's lives and priorities. In front of these houses are, in the words of Thomas Hine, those big front yards nobody uses. And next to them are the side yards that don't provide any privacy. He goes on to explain in an article published on February 17, 1974, that even if they don't necessarily use them, people like lawns. They are associated with gracious living. In fact, that front yard may have more to do with images of Mount Vernon or Monticello, check out the nickel, than it does with the need for family recreation space. Following on these observations, Hein concludes that if you believe people's houses, most people want to be in the countryside. As you move into lower middle-class suburbs, some lawn appears. This immediately means that there will be a little bit of fence that doesn't keep anyone from going anywhere. On fences, reporter Joseph Giovannini has much to say. In a piece dated August 13, 1987, he asserts that fences are as American as Tom Sawyer, who spent a legendary Missouri Day whitewashing one, and Robert Frost, who recommended good ones between neighbors. American politicians are said to spend a lot of time mending them, while people who are non-committal sit on them. Quiet, often recessive elements in American yards and fields, fences have entered both the dictionary as idiomatic expressions and the culture as lore. Traditionally, a fence kept people or animals in or out, and it marked boundaries and established territory. The farmers and cattlemen who originally built fences did so with the materials at hand and their own labor, at little or no cost, because they had to. The new generation of fences, however, is sophisticated and considerably more expensive. The changes in the fence market are due, on the one hand, to the increased security consciousness of homeowners and to their greater interest in gardens. Designers, on the other hand, have become more interested in traditional designs. Describing one site, Giovannini writes that the architects drew their inspiration from the Victorian details on a barn on the property and from precedents in landscaped English gardens. Speaking about fences broadly, Giovannini quotes Stephen Eisenhower, who says that fences are no longer only functional, but symbolic and expressive. In other words, according to Jacqueline Robertson, the late dean of the University of Virginia School of Architecture, we live in a culture of fences. In addition to fences, Eisenhower reports that we found houses with three pieces of split rail, a wagon wheel, and a milk can dropped like a piece of stage scenery on lawns. Further decorative accoutrements may appear when people go to the hardware store to pick up other items. A coach lamp adds a vaguely rustic touch, 
an iron lawn jockey is redolent of large southern plantation houses and gracious living. So far, we've described physical props and styles, but it's also worth taking some time to acknowledge another element common across these developments. As Hein writes, the same fantasies embodied by lawn-born artifice are obvious in the names of development. A name like Sweetbriar Meadows might well have been accurate before they came in with bulldozers and built all these houses. Ironically, the countryside is destroyed in order to present a few more people with an approximation of country living. Everyone knows that they are not living in the country when they move into such a development, just as the residents of Levittown, Pennsylvania, or Willingboro, New Jersey, know that the houses they are living in are not early American, even though they have names that conjure up such associations, and maybe a couple of dormers besides. Everyone knows it's not real, but the developers know that they have to find some attractive theme or fantasy on which to build their sales campaign. The colonial houses and heritage heights may have French-style mansard roofs, but they will still be called the best-in-country living with an early American flair. On the whole, in the words of Barbara Kelly, who wrote an analysis of Levittown in the fall of 1988, the suburb that resulted is composed of houses designed with a picturesque harmony in the tradition of such advocates of the rural ideal as John Ruskin, Andrew Jackson Downing, and Frederick Law Olmsted. The physical language of these developments is evidently directly tied to myths about the settling of the continent, and multiple reporters say as much. Kelly writes that, in essence, the Levitt House was the reduction of the American dream to an affordable reality, made possible in large part by the cooperative efforts of the government, the builders, and the banks. An article in the Philadelphia Inquirer from June 26, 1977, noted that for the Dowerties and the 17,310 other families who eventually moved into Levittown, it was the American dream come true. A house in the country, or as Mrs. Dougherty said, country living with city conveniences. Thomas Hine opined that the sprawl is where a great many of us live and where many more of us would like to live. It gives us the opportunity to say a lot about ourselves. It is as much an outgrowth of our needs, practical and psychological, as the clothes we wear. One other way in which the physical nature of these suburban developments interfaced with social attitudes and systems is that, as Barbara Kelly describes, the patterns of the basic houses built under the terms of the Federal Housing Administration and GI Bill reveal a code of what family life was or was supposed to be. So, continues Kelly, for the people who moved into these communities, they created of themselves a self-identified middle class, regardless of income or occupation, based on home ownership. In so doing, they became part of the ever-growing expansion of the middle class that has been part of the American dream since the Pilgrims landed in 1620. Okay, so we have a sense of what elements comprise a typical suburban street, whether it be in Levittown or in another community. And we've also spent some time looking at how these elements embody deeper, clearly settler colonial meanings. Let's dive a bit further into a discussion about how a theoretical framework centered on the notion that images express ideas and signal meaning can elucidate the settler colonial nature of Levittown. For this, we'll speak with Denise Scott Brown, an internationally renowned architect, planner, 
theorist, and all-around brilliant scholar. We should note that in 1970, with her partner Robert Venturi and teaching assistant Peter Schmidt, Denise ran a studio at the Yale School of Architecture entitled Remedial Housing for Architects, or Learning from Levittown. This podcast is not about the Learning from Levittown studio, and the issues we are discussing here were only one area of focus out of many that were considered in the studio. We believe, nonetheless, that because of her pioneering and deeply influential work on content analysis and pedagogical innovation, Denise is uniquely suited to contribute to this narrative. Thanks so much for joining us, Denise. I wanted to start by asking you about the function of buildings. Typically, we think of buildings as being places of shelter and of being spaces for businesses to operate. And while these functions are certainly valid, I was wondering if there are other ways that buildings function. Part of their function to communicate things to people, like where you find the bathroom door, but also what it means to be a democracy in America. See what I'm saying? Yes. And that, that's a function. That's a function of a building. It has to tell you by what you see when you're there and by its arrangements and whatever else, what you need to know. It gives information. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it'll be important for our listeners to remember that buildings act as communicators. I wanted to give you the opportunity briefly to discuss the Levittown studio that you conducted, even though that is not the focus of this podcast. It might help us understand where you're coming from when you talk about suburbia and content analysis. Herbert Gans wrote the conclusive book called The Levitalist, but the part to do with the physical, he did not handle. So in some ways, I felt that we were adding the chapter on the physical of Levitown and was in a studio which was looking for ways separate from planning analysis to convey to architects and urban designers interesting information about Levitown. And we used content analysis because we thought it would intrigue the students visually and therefore they would be interested, even draw them into reading books. But the idea was we were adding the chapter about the physical Levitown in doing that work, using our own research techniques and discovering that the physical pervades information and one of its functions is to do just that, and it does that in many, many different ways. In terms of your approach to the content that the students analyzed, did anything stand out to you in terms of, oh, it seems like the literatures and the advertisements are trying to speak to a particular demographic or to convey a particular kind of social impetus? Yes, we had it organized according to lifestyles and social ways too. And what sort of ads would apply to upper middle class intellectuals to various other classes? And then Clap Gans' book on taste cultures was important in that. I am curious on a personal level if when you were looking at Levittown or suburbia in general, did anything about the physical environment or the imagery register as seeming colonial or of a colonist yes. nature? Yes, a whole lot. And his dad, the paint everyone used was based on colonial colors. There were famous paint stores and they just had the range, the colonial range, and that was the most popular thing with everyone. So 
Colonia was really what drove everyone, even the, the Italian one was a mixture, you know, the, the patriotic things like the ego and all of that, and then also the Madonna. So there were sometimes mixed messages of that sort, but everyone relied on those gray beige colors and from the richest to the poorest, they wanted those colors. And in terms of maybe thinking about the word colonial more broadly as as the act of colonization, did the imagery or the environment register in the planning and execution of suburbia as being like a colonial project, do you think? Well, if you look at Levitard's plans, it's meant to be like a colonial village of some sort. There was winding roads which the colonial didn't have that was more rural, but it was something like that. It was meant to also hark back to olden days. Could you elaborate on maybe other ways that it harkened back to olden days? Well, again, a great love of pitched roofs. And then the pattern of the pitched roofs as you approached. You see that in some of the ads that are in our collection there. You see the roof lines all making a pattern as you approach. And that suggested a colonial town and a good address. The pitch roofs and lawns and front was a good address. Well, it seems like that's a good note to end on, drawing a direct parallel between the style and physical nature of suburbia and the social implication of living in a good neighborhood. We really, really appreciate that you took the time to speak with us. Thank you so, so much. As we've previously mentioned, the image of small, tidy houses with pitched roofs, separated by picket fences and manicured lawns, is so ubiquitous in the collective image of suburbia that its references almost go unrecognized. However, given the bitter racial tension that is inextricable to our understanding of this time period, it does not seem like a coincidence that these images bear a striking resemblance to the country's first colonial settlements. In an era of rapid technological development, including the ability to construct new types of mass-produced housing, the decision to replicate certain colonial images cannot be considered benign. Instead, the carefully constructed image of Levittown and other communities like it reflect a desire to place themselves within the larger narrative of America's settler colonial history. In doing so, the residents of these communities are placed within this narrative as well. However, this logic, that of an unbroken visual connection between America's first landowning residents and those purchasing these homes, is imbued with a blatant ignorance towards the reality of the country's history, to the degree that its mythology ultimately finds itself hard to sustain. At the core of this dissonance is the fact that many residents of Levittown, although white, do not have any legitimate ancestral ties to the country's foundation. Instead, it can be presumed that many of the residents, who were able to purchase their homes largely because of access to very recent government programs, are descendants of much more recent immigrants from various ethnic white backgrounds. Their ancestors, unlike the original English settlers who would have owned idyllic houses in the countryside, probably lived in small inner-city apartments that were emblematic of the immigrant working class. Gaining ownership of a single-family home in the suburbs was a way of cementing themselves in an image of whiteness that tied them more closely to the narrative of a settler colonial past than a poor immigrant one. Some white residents of Levittown seemed more attached to this chosen narrative than others, choosing to defend their whiteness by rejecting the possibility of coinciding peacefully with black families. Therefore, when the Myers moved into the Levittown development in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, this disruption to the status quo was met with anger and violence by some. 
Their image of a colonial settlement was incongruous with the image of a black family residing within it, and some white residents were not willing to amend their vision for what a landowning class should look like, despite the fact that in many cases, their own ancestors would not have had access to America's colonial settlements either. However, other white residents came to the Myers' defense with the hope of creating an integrated vision of American suburbia. The presence of these residents, those who held views seemingly antithetical to the communities in which they lived, is emblematic of one of the most dangerous qualities of the suburban pastoral landscape. As Charles Davis notes, it is the relative banality and ubiquity of the suburban pastoral that makes it so dangerous. Because we've normalized it, it perpetuates whiteness by making the racial animus of these colonial gestures invisible. Therefore, Levittown residents who did not personally harbor racial animosity found themselves unknowingly acting within a framework that supported settler colonial motives. And what of the dream of middle-class respectability? If a Negro family can afford what you can afford, how do you justify your feeling of superiority? The illogic of one's own position becomes apparent, and in self-justification, the old tribal myths are invoked. I don't think you can take a middle of the stand here. Either you're for them or against them. I've taken a stand for, for peace and nonviolence and no intimidation of the Myerses. I don't have any prejudice uh, against uh, colored. It's just that I wouldn't like to have one as a neighbor. We would act to them as we would act to any other neighbors. We'd be friendly towards them and, and speak to them and visit with them. I wouldn't care to live in the community where the Negroes would be living. I think that the majority of people here will accept things and uh, believe, as I believe, that a good neighbor is not one whose color is white or black, just as a good citizen is such. Mr. Myers and all the Negroes have a right. I'm no better than them. They're as good as I am. But the only reason that Mr. Myers came into Levittown is to show people they could get here. I, I just feel that they're within their legal rights to move in here. And if they move in, they're law-abiding citizens. I have no complaint. If more colored are allowed to move in, Levittown is going to go downhill. I don't think that the Myers have anything to do with the property decreasing or increasing. I think it's purely a white problem, not a Negro problem. The main issue is the right of these people to live like America as they choose, to be accepted as good neighbors. In this podcast, we've argued that by breaking down and analyzing the artifice of suburbia at different scales, from objects to overall house forms to neighborhood plans, it is possible to see how the physical environment of these new communities was in fact acting on many levels to appear like and to become another link in the myth and narrative of the white occupation of this continent's land. There are many other studies that address the topic of race and Levittown in considerable depth. We hope that this podcast contributes to the wider dialogue by reaffirming the value of using content analysis to reveal how the physical environment embodies meaning. For those who are interested in further exploring these issues via additional published materials, we suggest reading Herbert Ganz's The Levittowners, Cheryl Harris's Whiteness as Property, and Diane Harris's Little White Houses. As we mentioned earlier on in this podcast, the suburban pastoral imagery that is omnipresent in Levittown and in suburbia more broadly 
may seem to be relatively innocuous. At the individual level, addressing some of the larger institutional conditions that have created these challenges may be beyond our control, but we still have the power to recognize, acknowledge, and deconstruct the settler colonial forces around us. Naming an issue is the first step toward dismantling the hegemony of a system which is, at least in part, so insidious because it is so often invisible. Through content analysis and a critical engagement with the physical environment, it is possible to call out images of whiteness in advertisements, in our neighborhoods, and in our everyday lives. The music that plays between clips is an excerpt from the song A Road Less Traveled by the artist Ketza. This can be found on the Free Music Archive and Creative Commons information for the song can be found in our show notes. The period audio comes from the 1957 documentary Crisis in Levittown, Pennsylvania, directed by Professor Dan W. Dodson of the NYU School of Education's Center for Human Relations and Community Studies. The original documentary can be found on YouTube. The definition of settler colonialism that we use in this episode can be found in Oxford bibliographies, and the full citations for the news articles that we quote can be found in our show notes. Once again, we'd like to thank Denise Scott Brown for taking the time to speak with us. I have had the privilege of working with Denise for the past year and a half on research related to this subject, and I'm grateful for her insight and generosity. Thank you for listening. That concludes this episode of the Raysan Podcast. For updates on future episodes, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Podcast, all one word. To access the show notes and more information on our guests, please visit the Society of Architectural Historians Race and Architectural History Affiliate Group page at sahraah.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.